are back with another episode of the Refu Podcast. We've got uh, a fun, fun guest today, Chris Rack. He's the CRO of Demand Science. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, awesome. Good to be here, Darren. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, let's let's kick it off with just a little bit about yourself and uh, how you how you got to be in your role at, at Demand Science CRO. Awesome. Uh, I've been at Demand Science six years officially in July, so I just got my six-year anniversary. Um, I started a company called Pure B2B. We've recently rebranded into Demand Science over the past year or so as we've had a couple of acquisitions and pulled a bunch of things together. Funny enough, I'll be the uh, typical transparent self. Um, I got the job at Demand Science because I was fired from my last one. Oh. Um, no, it was one of those unceremonious departures from a previous org where a new leadership team came through and I obviously wasn't aligned with the new leaders. I was very much one of the key components of the old regime. Um, and, you know, I was uh, ceremoniously told to uh, find a new direction. I was already, the rubber was already kind of on the road and I'd already been looking. Um, and I'd reached that point in my career to be candid, Darren, where I, I was ready to do my own thing. I had been a middle-level manager in multiple organizations, an individual contributor multiple times. And I was, I wanted the opportunity to, to own it from start to finish. And at the time, uh, Demand Science was right around a $5 million company. Um, they gave me the opportunity as chief revenue officer to take it over. And this year we should be, uh, we should end up just about 175 to 180 million, just six years later, so. Amazing. Awesome. What should we what should we think about the the posters before we jump into it too much? What should we think about the posters you have behind you? How should I if, if I'm talking to you on a Zoom, which I am, what what should that tell me about about who you are? Oh, I'm a massive content consumer. Like I love content, you know. So movies have always been a big movie guy. I, I'm always consuming movies, music, et cetera. And I take a lot from it. I mean, I can't tell you how many sales lessons, how many weekly calls, how many bi-weeklies where I'll reference movie pieces. One of my core fundamental sales philosophies is what I call the Shawshank methodology, right? Which is basically sales is really about pressure and time and applying the right amount of pressure over the right amount of time without moving one too farther. You know, you move it too far in either direction and you break it. And that comes directly from the pressure and time, you know, met, uh, monologue in, in the Shawshank. So uh, that's, those are all vinyl stickers that I've carried with me from office to office as I've moved around. So, you know, it's always in the background. And again, I, it's part of my, uh, it's always been my thing, everybody. It's always something to talk about, at least, as you have a, you jump on a call and everybody always tends to comment on it. I want to go get an Oreo, seeing John Malkovich and Rounders. It's a great movie. Great sales movie, too. Yeah, they're all, they're all, it's so good. Yeah. James Earl Jones got Sandlot. It's awesome. Uh, all right, so let's, let's get into, like, hiring on your team. If somebody's looking to get, a role at demand science, what are you looking for when you're hiring? Our, our you know, we, we obviously sit down and we talk about this a lot, you know, but for us, you know, our number one, I guess you would say trait or the one thing we look for the most is coachability, right? Um, and again, we spoke about this earlier, what, what grinds my gears, right, is when, is when folks uh, reach a point and, and it happens to everybody at some point in their career and some people catch themselves and some they don't where they think they know everything like because it's worked before this is their way of doing things and and for me the world has changed I mean if you look at just how the world has changed just in the past 24 months right to think that a sales or a, a leadership methodology you used in 2017 or 2009 or 2012 that was ridiculously successful could still work it's just baffling 
right? But but so many sellers, and, and anybody, but sellers especially, come in, they pull out their, I've always done it this way playbook, right? And no matter what the leadership team presents or no matter what ideas have come forth, they're always just going to do it that way. And if it doesn't work, then it was the product market fit or it was the company or it was just bad luck. And sometimes it's just you. Sometimes it's just you not being adaptable and coachable. And so that's the, the key component that I look for, right? My specialty is taking really, really talented people who have some good processes and have some some natural abilities to read people and situations and that and give them the tools from a process and methodology to execute upon that make them great. Right. And that's why we've been a successful sales organization because we've combined those two things. But if you're not coachable, if you're not willing to have someone give you direct feedback that what you're doing isn't good or needs to be improved, then you're never going to be successful. Not in my sales org. How do you, how do you uh, yeah, how do you, how do you suss that out in the interview process? Which, which I, do you have a go-to questions or a line yeah. of questioning or, or how, yeah. how do you do that? Everything we do is fairly process-based, right? So all of the, all of our interviewers interview the same way, the same questions, the same rubric, the same scoring methodology, the same, et cetera. And we have a very specific group of questions built that cover our four key, you know, we have, we have four key traits, but for me, the biggest one is coachability. So we have a specific group of questions that are designed to as best we can in an interview process, just, you know, look for traits and responses that show coachability at that. Also, I mean, more so um, just telling people, right? Part of the interview process is somebody along the way has a really blunt conversation with a prospective candidate. This is what you can expect selling here. And one of those things is coachability. And, and this isn't one of those, you do it your way because you're really talented and you've been selling a long time. This is that I'm gonna take what you do well, combine it with our processes, which we know work over scale and time, and we're gonna turn you into being great. And having that conversation and being willing to have someone say, demand science isn't a good fit for me then. And shake hands and say, awesome, there's other sales orgs where it might be a better fit. Is there a specific, so we, so there's a lot to unpack in there. Uh, <laughs> the, the process, I love it though. I mean, that, that's, that's, it's a great approach. I think, um, I guess, I guess, you know, the, the flip side of that is somebody who's not coachable, they, they, they're a talented salesperson, but they're not willing to fit into your process that, you know, at this point drives success for talented people and makes them great. What do you think it would, is it, is it, you know, how you manage data customers, how you report up the chain? What, what part of the process do you think would cause the most friction maybe for somebody who's not as adaptable or coachable? Like, what do you worry about when you bring on new somebody you know or believe is very talented but you're like man i hope they can fit into our process like what what is it that, yeah, that you'd be worried most about is, most of it is on call and follow-up stuff right like um most talented sellers on call whether it's a demo or whether it's the discovery or whether it's that tend to go tend to do things their way that's where they feel more comfortable right so again we do everything fairly process oriented standard discovery questions you know pitch times what we cover, how we do it, next steps. You know, every part of the sales process has a place. I'm a scientific seller. I, I'm not talented. I never have been. I was never a natural seller. I've always been a massive introvert, right? And I've always been somewhat data-driven, right? But I learned early on that if you do the same thing thousands of times in the same way, then you become A, massively good at executing it, and also you become quite predictable because when you, when you do the same thing the same way thousands of times, people react to it and your customers react to it the same way, 
thousands of times. So you know what to expect because you almost can predict how they're going to answer the questions that you ask them. What talented sellers do is they rely on reading people and they rely on the room and their talents and their natural abilities and really just understanding how people engage. And again, that's not when people say that that's a natural seller, it almost has nothing to do with the pitch and how well they communicate with people. That's one of the most common misconceptions. Natural sellers are really good at reading the other person and understanding what they need to hear, what they wanna hear, what their objections are likely going to be, and then solving for them in advance. But most of us don't have those talents, right? It's very rare, it's a one percenter thing, right? So giving people the, the, the questions that they have to ask the same way, and then teaching them how to perfect how you ask those questions and giving them the next steps and the direction and, and teaching them and working on reps on how to perfect those things, you're not gonna win all the deals because a, a process-oriented approach like that is never gonna be one size fits all, but at scale, you are going to win significantly more of them because A, you can understand what's broken in your sales process because you can see it. It comes at you like a red, like a red alarm piece of data because everybody's doing it different. And, and I got here because I was not like that when I started, right? Like when I took over the sales team, there were five people and everybody did their own thing. And I kept trying to figure out, and, and I'm like, we're, we're average, we're not successful. We're, we're not, we're not scaling as fast as I thought we'd be because we're talented, right? Like, and I was like, why? I couldn't put my finger on it. And I realized that I couldn't put my finger on it because there's nothing to put my finger on. Everybody was doing it different. This person was, was not seeing success because of discovery. This person wasn't following up right. This person was in that. So when I put in the first 1.0 method of our standard discovery call and follow-up process, all of the things came out for me and I was able to troubleshoot and figure out exactly where to focus my time on. How many, how many of those five people are still, are still there? Um, so four and one of, one of those people, one of those people left and came back. Mm. So one of the, he left, he left as an individual contributor and now he came back and he's my VP. So you inherited some adaptability and some coachability. It sounds like, even though yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a well-oiled well machine, but some of the raw materials were there. Uh -huh. Yeah. You, uh, you talk about four characteristics you look, look for, coachability being one. Uh, I've got two questions. I'll start with one. Um, what, what's an example of a question you ask to suss out coachability? I don't, I'm going to be candid with you. I don't have it in the top of my head. I don't have the actual questions. I don't want to give you, I don't want to make something up off the top. Yeah, yeah. I have it off the top of my head because it's, yeah. I don't, inter and it, also, I don't interview a ton anymore. Yeah. We're just so big that I don't, I don't actively interview a lot of people anymore. I'd love to. I know there are sales organizations where no matter if they're 500 employees, the CRO interviews everybody. Me personally, I trust my people, right? Like if, if we have the processes in place and if, and if they feel that this is the person we should go for, then I'm stamping my approval on it. And I would love to do, I like, I would prefer to do things that aren't interviewing 72 people a week, you know, because it's just a massive time suck. So I don't have, I don't, to begin again, I, depend, I don't have one off the top of my head. Yeah, fair. Uh, so the other question is, what are the other three characteristics you look for? Grit. Um, one of our core values, which we call be human, which is kind of hard to quantify, quantify, right? Like it's, it's, you know, people, some people just have a vibe about them that just is very authentic, right? And, and that is something that we look for, right? Um, so grit, be human, that, and uh, accountability, right? Like, like, be, like being able to self-manage, 
right? Like self-starters, if you will. I love self-starters. I would rather have someone who self-starts and messes everything up than someone constantly asking me what they should do. Yeah. Before you, yeah, before you, um, you know, before we move on from that kind of coachability thing, I, I guess flipping that back around, how does the org live that value? Like, are you, how are you, how are you all adapting? Like, and, and probably less so much coachability, but more adaptability in terms of that process, right? That process has to change given what you said about how everything's evolving and changing so fast. Uh, right. I last time I ran a sales org was 2017. Right. So if I started one up now, I know that it'd have to look a lot different. So like, how, how are you, how are you, um kind of living that that value with, with what you I mean, do at the CRO level. It's it's really a, a constant evolution, right? Like just we're just right now I think we're still in learning phase. This hybrid post-COVID world with lots of Zoom and lots of remote and you know all of that has its benefits, right? Your talent pool just expanded nationally, right? Versus having to be focused on very specific locals, right? So you have the ability to acquire talent faster, better talent, etc. But I mean, what, what I found the biggest challenge where I'm struggling the most and trying to solve for, because again, I don't have all the answers, is the what I call like the transmission of tribal knowledge that organically happens in an office, but especially a sales office, you know, either out for coffee, in the break room, out having a cigarette, walking in between things, you know, like the things that happen not in a formal training meeting where John walks by Sally and Sally says something to the client and John says, I just had that objection on, on a call, right? And I spoke to Bill and Bill helped me solve for it. So you need to talk to Bill, right? Now in a remote world, no one knows that Sally had the call, right? No one knows that she needs Bill. And if Bill, and if she doesn't actively ask 22 people who can help her with this and eventually get to Bill, her chances of losing that will go down significantly. So trying to create the, the the tribal knowledge or the transmission of tribal knowledge without that general organic closeness right is a uh, is a huge challenge that we've been experimenting with we've we've done all this you know, we've been experimenting with a lot of stuff the second thing is really again mental health especially for sellers um, remote working works for a lot of non sales divisions marketing operations finance who are whose days are generally meeting heavy. Right. Yeah, you can talk to a marketing buyer, a marketing person, a finance person, an ops person, an executive. It's probably 30, you know, 55, 60, almost 70% of their day is likely full of meetings. Either ones that they have to run or engage with, because that's just how their worlds work. From a sales perspective, unless you're really, really good, you have to I mean, you have to fill your own calendar for the most part. And there are going to be days where you don't. And you know, getting up and dealing with the mental anguish of of looking at a calendar that's blank, knowing that it needs to be full for you to hit your targets in your job, right? Being by yourself that much in that level, in that type of stressful environment that's so numbers focused, you know, the, the mental health side of the thing is really, really challenging for sellers. And I've been really pushing internally to try to give our sellers as much as we can from a support perspective on that part of it, right? And, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's, not, it's, a, it's, it's a tougher thing to do you know, to ask the executive team for money for things like that, right? Because, you know, everybody's like, oh, you're, you guys get paid the, the best. We pay you a fortune, your sales. You know, we take care of you, you got all that. You know, you're going to whine to me about mental health? And, and I'm like, yeah, I am actually, because 
what we do, you know, carrying the weight of an entire company on our backs is usually significantly more stressful than most non-sellers. And I'm sure I'm going to get yelled at or ripped for that one, but I said it. They won't listen to it. Hey, how, how about <laughs> this? They don't even know this exists. So, so that's it. I mean, it's it's a very important topic, and it's obviously been topical for spe specifically the last couple of years. But if I'm a seller on your team and I come to you and I'm like, man, you know, Chris, I'm like kind of struggling this week. I don't have a lot on my calendar. I'm not, you know, okay, you know, it's it's wearing on me. Like, how how would it? What would I do? What should I do in, in that? What what should my day look like? Like, what do I? You know, is it prospecting or or you know, th there are things right like to focus on to. It's maybe not immediate revenue quota stuff, but what will you guide them uh, to, to, to do like tactically from a, from a workload perspective? I mean, the hardest thing about it is, is the first thing you have to do is you have to tell them that the work you're gonna do now isn't gonna show up for three weeks. And in some cases, at least three, three to six weeks, right? Or four yeah. months, right? So you have to, you have to, for, you know, like, I'll, like first have that conversation because if they don't understand that, which you tactically, tactically recommend they do right now, right? They don't get it. Most sellers don't get immediate results with that tactical recommendation, and then they give up and they end up spinning their circles and going back to the way it always was, right? So, but for for me, I mean, I have two key focuses that I I always tell people. One, focus on the input, right? Like every day, you are responsible for an input. And if you think as a seller that your input should be the same each day, you are doing it wrong, right? Every day, your input should be completely different based on where you are in the month, where you are from a target perspective, where you are from a pipeline perspective, what your calendar looks like, what's going on in your personal life, what do you have that weekend? You know, like every day, you're, the first thing you should do the first 10 minutes of your day is like input analysis. Where am I at? What do I need to do? And what should my inputs be? And most sellers, most others, I don't know when it happened, but it's become quite common is that this is what I do. I, like every day I'm going to do this much activity. I'm going to do this. I'm going to put this much effort in and, and I'm going to hope for the best. Right. And at the end of the day, I hope this is enough for me to hit my target where it's usually not. Right. So that self-analysis of where you're at, right. Where, you know, where you're, and the second is finding the why, right. Find, like find, find your why for the day right? And, and give yourself a why. And I use find the why a lot, especially on discovery calls. You probably, you know, I say it on LinkedIn a lot of the time too. Like every prospect or client will tell you what their want is. Every, like if I got on the phone with you and say, I want the highest quality candidates, right? I want, I want higher salespeople fast. And you'd be like, great. You could probably try to solve for that, but I want it because if I don't hire those people, I'm probably going to get fired, right? Or if I don't hire those people, I'm going to miss my targets. That's the why. If you solve for the why, you're always going to be successful on that side. But internally, it, it works the same. Like you're in, like doing what we do is the hardest thing on the planet. There's a reason why sellers, in some cases, make more than neurosurgeons who save lives, who change, who actually change the world. Because what we do is the hardest thing, one of the hardest things to do on a daily basis because it sucks. It's a grind. It's boring. It's process based. It's resilient. It's stressful. It, it can literally rip your heart out, right? And and again, you have to do it every day for some case, for me, almost 20 years for, you know, for all of us. So like, if you don't wake up every day and remind yourself why you're doing it, trying to identify what that is, then you might as well pack up your chips. So that's, those are my two things. Start with why, figure that out first, correct your inputs, and then everything should usually follow from there.
Uh, that's so good for discovery too. to start with why champion building what's in it for them personally like you're right like oh i need good candidates but like yeah why like i'm literally going to lose my job if i don't have a team that can help hit their number yeah, i love that uh you talked about you know the not in person thing the slack thing um how, how are you keeping the team connected like what, what are you doing that's helping tribal knowledge what yeah, how, are you how, are you solving, yeah. how are you solving tribal knowledge I'm trying to bring people together as much as I can, to be honest with you. Like I'm, I, I, I've upped my internal, uh, I've upped my internal, my internal T and E budgets. Once it's been somewhat safe to do, and I'm, I'm just going old school. I'm trying to bring people back as much as possible. I have, like, I have my whole leadership team in, uh, my whole leadership team in Chicago. You know, all 38 of them this week, right? Because again, we're just the first time globally we've ever met each other. So. Um, so I'm trying to do as much of that as possible. I have like a mid-year kickoff in Vegas in August where I'm bringing the whole sales organization in for the first time in three years, right? So I'm, I personally think the only way that you can do it is to is to do it, actually bring people back in person, which, you know, costs some cash and you got to invest in it and all that, but it's really, really important. You know, from that, you know, like we, we do a lot of group chatting on Slack, right? I, I've been really, really pushing my team, especially leaders to not schedule meetings. I'm the most anti-meeting person on the planet because most meetings are terribly run, right? There's no agenda, there's no next steps, there's no whatever. It ends up being kind of incoherent rambling. Um, and most of them can be covered with just calling someone. Just call them. Like, like our, I don't know when it happened, but our default in the, in the business world, when you want to talk to someone became, let me check their calendar and see when I can put a meeting on to talk to them too. Not John, what's up? Can we fix this later? Like, and and so like just by really pushing people to do that. And again, me personally, I decline a lot of meetings. I just decline. Like internal. I can't, yeah, internal. I decline. Yeah. yeah, everybody. Yeah. Like I didn't matter. Like decline. Like if 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 I if I don't, if there's no agenda. If someone sends me a meeting that says chat, unless you're the CEO. Right, you know, like, and let, but if someone sends me an agenda that says quick chat, decline. That provides no value to me. I have no idea what a quick chat is. If it's a quick chat, you should have just called me. We'll have a quick chat, right? Like, you know, so I, I, and I encourage my team to do that. And if anybody outside of my organization gives them shit for declining it, then they can talk to me, right? It takes nine seconds to put an agenda in someone and it takes one second to call them. We use a lot of Slack and Instant Messenger and those groups to try to collaborate and talk, you know, tell stories and share. And I, I incentivize my people with, we use a platform called Motivosity to share, you know, to share tribal knowledge. You know, we have individual Slack groups about certain objections or situations or like our email prospecting methodology, we call it the bucket system, right? Where we have very specific buckets of how we prospect to people. So we have a Slack group where people share their emails that worked that got meetings, that that, so we can showcase our methodologies in actual real life thing. Or if someone says like, hey, I can't figure out how to prospect this customer, what do you guys think? And then we we incentivize people to share their stories on those things. So it's a little bit of, you know, you would love for it to be organic, but sometimes it requires, you know, pushing people in the right direction. It's interesting, you mentioned um, the email marketing strategy, right? And and somebody saying, how would you, you know, what do you think about this email or this email did really well or this did, so, so going back to what you said earlier about the process, right? So like that, to me, then that's that's actually pretty interesting to hear, right? How, how deep your process goes, you built the machine, but within that machine, it sounds like there's reasonable flexibility 
for sellers to experiment, use their own language and wording and personality? How am I, am I, am I right in kind of, kind of trying to juxtapose those two things against each other or, yeah. or, or, yeah, or it's, what? It's like a, um, it's like a choose your own adventure book. Remember those old books where you can kind of oh, yeah. like a format was the same, but you can still kind of like, so like an email for us has a very specific, a very specific process and a very specific like setup or, or division, right? You have a subject line that's naturally designed to gain the person's attention, referencing something personal to them, right? If they're active, if they're active on LinkedIn, you reference a post or a comment or their profile or et cetera, right? That gets you the open, right? You open, you, the, the, the first part of the body is you follow that up with a little bit more detail to make it, to, to confirm to them that you're not a shitty bot or an automation coming from one of those shitty platforms, right? And then you comment, try to quickly connect it to what we call the call to action, right? Or the, the value prop. And that's a quick three second sentence about what we do and why it's important to them, right? And then from there, we usually you know, rotate call to actions that make it somewhat efficient versus let's have a meeting or are you interested in hearing more or different kind of variations from there? But the person, my seller has to go in and, and find the creativity to figure out what that subject line is that makes them, right? Like, so as a, for instance, like, you know, Darren, if I was prospecting you, my subject line would probably say Erstad, question mark, right? Because I know that you have a jersey behind you that says Erstad. So I know 75, 80% of the time you're going to open it. Right. And, Mo, and and I don't know, Ryan and, and, and Darren, if your email box looks like mine, but getting the open is usually 80% of the battle. going to say, yeah, at least. Yeah. Especially with, especially with all the outreach and outreach and sales loft and the 700 different versions of garbage automation that's out there these days. And, you know, like the amount of emails coming into our mailbox is just significant. So I'm not even talking about LinkedIn either. It's disgusting. Um, yeah, there's a lot of spammy that comes that way too. So, you know, my, so I like to, again, it's a, it's a template that's built psychologically to you know, try to work through the noise, but I put the onus on the sellers and the SDRs to come up with the creativity that actually earns the, the meeting on their side. Yeah. I like it. I like the, cho the choose your own adventure analogy. That's, it's like two levels deeper than the Mad Lib analogy, right? Where it's like, no, here's the template. You just got to plug in, you know, first name here, you know, verb here you know, pronoun here, whatever. I mean, like if I, I mean, it all depends. I mean, and I'll, I'll quid pro quo this with anybody, right? Like it depends on your, what your sales work is, right? I mean, if your TAM is unlimited, right? If, if I'm selling VoIP phones and there are literally 200 bajillion companies on the planet who could buy a VoIP phone, then I'm going to go to outreach and I'm going to buy a whole bunch of data of the people who buy VoIP phones and I'm going to do a Mad Libs plug and play and I'm going to go fishing for the 10 to 15 people who may be interested in VoIP phones that week because I know that my TAM is literally unlimited, right? But in my space, I only have maybe three to 5,000 customers who fit my who fit what I do for the most part, right? So I have to be more specific and I have to put the time into prospecting and doing that. So again, I, I forgot to prequel that with my approach isn't for everyone because taking a personal as approach as I do in a gigantic TAM is never going to work because now you're not going to cover the TAM and you're not going to miss the opportunities coming in. Right. All right. Uh, let's get into like, obviously your org's growing. There's a bunch of job openings. How do you guys get candidates in sales org? Um, we use you guys. Woo. Yeah. So, yeah. It's gone well. Uh, you know, we use that. We use you guys. I think we use a couple other platforms. I think we have, you know, Indeed and a couple of that. We, we leverage referrals a lot. 
right? We have a nice referral bonus internally. A lot of our talents come, not just in sales, but in CX and other departments as well, too. Um, we, we're really, really open to internal transfers across divisions, trying new things, et cetera. I have, I have marketing people whose people started marketing who now sell. I have sellers who started marketing. I have customer experience people who now sell. I have sellers who went to customer experience. Every once in a while, we'll have somebody goes over to finance, right? Our sales operations team are almost all former sellers, right? So I, I mean, sales is something that some people do just because they can do it, but they're just, they don't love it. But most of the time they love something very, very close, right? And, and I guess what I've seen this most successfully in sales operations, right? In sales ops and rev ops, right? Like, like, like they're, my sales ops training and rev ops team loves what they do, right? Because they love sales, but it just wasn't for them. That mental grind, that mental pain that they experienced, they just, it just, they could they do it? Yeah, but were they kind of sort of miserable doing it? Yeah. But in the sales ops and enablement role, being able to train and solve problems and still work in the sales team and still be part of the, the journey and still be right in there in the trenches, they love it, right? So those Bless are probably them. the three big, the three biggest things. Yeah. Bless RevOps, bless enablement. The good ones are very valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. So you're, you're looking for a role. You've got the four characteristics. You get through your initial screening. How does somebody, like, what does the process look like once you're in your interview process? It's pretty quick. We try to make it as fast as possible only because I hate long interview processes. Pet peeve, my personal pet peeve. So I tend to control it from there. I mean, I've, I've had jobs where I've interviewed eight people like legit eight people. Like there's no way that eight people need to talk to someone to hire a salesperson, right? There's no, I mean, there's no way that eight people have talked to anybody to hire anybody who probably isn't the CEO, right? So like, I think those, any, any, oh, those long drawn out interviewing processes are more indulgent, more about ego and people who feel like they need to be involved in some sort of situation or stuff, right? So my sales process is, is, is we have a, uh, we have like a, a video, like a, pitch me yourself video. We have a video exercise, right? Where someone has to like send us a video with them kind of pitching that, right? We use that as kind of a, to be, to be honest with you, like that's like a, a, one of our coachability things as well too, right? If you send someone a task, you know, if you would, you know, the first step of our interview process, Darren, is to follow these instructions, record this video with these parameters and deliver it to us in this format by this time on this day, you'd be surprised how many people don't. They either send it late, it's in a different format, they didn't follow the directions, it's whatever, right? Like, so if you're, if you're a candidate and, and someone sends you an email with a four-step thing to follow to deliver on a, a video, like, and you can't, and you somehow miss one of those four things, like, that's a pretty telling sign of whether they're going to be able to execute on your processes at scale long-term. And I'm not even looking, people think you're looking for talent or ability, because you know, the, the actual video itself. I don't even open the video most of the time. Like just for the simple act that people did it well. Do what you say you're going to do, right? Just do yeah. what the bar, the bar does not have to be that high in some cases, right? Do what you say you're going to do. That's, that's something I used to talk about in, you know, in, in it's prospect follow-up, right? At the end of the call, yep. you say you're going to do X, Y, and Z. That's it. I love that. So, so post video, what's what, so you, they send, they send the team a video the team may or may not open the video. Good job doing the video. Uh, we'd love to speak with you. Like, and then what, a couple more steps, uh, two steps yeah, after that, have, that like? you have two steps. You have, you have a, 
had an interview step with uh, one of my, with two of my leaders in essence, right? And then those are the only required steps. Sometimes there's more steps that a candidate has more questions or wants to talk to somebody or any of that, right? You know, that it can be a little bit more drawn out from there. But for the most part, we like to keep it with two, you know, the direct report of the person or one of their peers and then the owner of that particular division. And then we go from there, they make the call from there. And then we try to get the paperwork out as fast as possible, but, you know, logistics, paperwork, HR, they love, you know, they're big fans of paperwork and docu-signs and job descriptions and, you know, all of that fun stuff, right? So, you know, usually it's a, usually it's a couple, couple, three days before we get that stuff out. How about, how about negotiation? Uh, you, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, you, you offer X, you offer OTE, I'm just going to make this up 120K. They say, all right, can, can you do 132 and, I don't know if you do equity, but, you know, an extra three days vacation. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, how, how do you think about that? How do you respond? How do you, how do you I mean, that? as a, as an old school seller, right? Like I love when people negotiate, like if you're going to be in sales, and you don't negotiate, like you're probably going to be the seller who just says, let's take the deal. Let's get it closed. Right. Like, like you know, like, I don't know. I don't, I would never not hire someone because they didn't negotiate, but do I see it as a nod in their favor if I was on the fence because they're not negotiating on, you know, like that, right? So, but I'm always, you're always open to it, right? I usually let most of my leaders, um, I usually let most of my leaders just make those calls and we have parameters and we have, you know, we have a whole bunch of shit in place to make sure that everybody's in the same ranges and then we have fail safes in place and we're all in budget and all those sort of things, right? But, you know, it's a... I mean, some things I'm massively passionate about, some I'm not, right? Time off, things of that nature, you know, like it, it is, if you do your job well, I, I, you know, I don't even know how many hours when you take off. It doesn't matter, you know, like, so like that stuff, I'm fairly open to it, but as we've grown, you know, you know, I, I let, I usually let people on my team make those calls. Got it. You get somebody that gets through all the tasks, they send the video on time, they do all the things you want them to do, uh, and you thought they were amazing, but they didn't get the job. Why? What's an example of someone that got to that point but didn't get the job? And why? Yeah, how can you, know, they, how can you shoot yourself in the foot sort of thing, I think, is like... Yeah, like how do, you, how do you mess up if you're really, if you're a good candidate? Jan, um, you know, like, I, I've, I've, I mean, I've had people disappear. <laughs> people just you know like most of the time when people don't get the job it's because they were looking at others they were looking at a multiples they decided to go with a different offer and they ghost you right like you know high quality people are usually looking at multiple things at the same time and then you know that but you know i've how do people i i mean i can tell you how mo- most companies mess it up right like yeah. that that's probably the better thing and most of us most companies mess it up by just taking too damn long and not communicating well right like I can't tell, I mean, I've been in processes where I've had to follow up on people like, what the shit? Like, like, how are you, like, we were, like, I, I legit, I mean, I've had five, I mean, I've had executive level interviews where I've had five, six, seven rounds. I've, I've, I've flown out to places. I've had, you know, dinners with executives and all that. And then they just disappear for like 30, 60 days. And I'm following up because that's what I do. I'm, I'm, I'm a seller. I follow up and still ghosting, right? That's how you lose people because you don't just lose that person, you lose more people because you get a reputation for being people who just don't give a shit, 
about humans, right? And again, be human is one of our core things. So everything that we do in the sales organization, including interview is as human as we possibly can. We're not perfect. Sometimes we, you know, sometimes you get busy and you don't follow up or you, you know, like not saying we've never ghosted someone in an interview process because that shit happens, right? But, but everything we do is consciously trying to not do that. Love it. Love it. Yep. Taking too long. Common refrain from folks that we hear from every day. So that's good. Uh, someone starts, you do hire them. How do they, how do they go? How are they off to the races quickly? How are they ramping quick? Um, you know, so we, we spend a lot of time in training. We have a two week training, right. Which is both in class and like uh, executable task, right? You know, the basics and all those core components of the process. We have an LMS, we have all that. So it's a pretty robust two-week training program that we kind of put people through and put people to paces. Um, and then from there, you know, we, we, we bring them in and they really just kind of, I believe that you only learn by doing, right? You know, so like I, little things, like I, I don't recommend my, my team leads, my sales managers and my leaders join calls with reps in their first month out, right? Should, may I lose? Am I probably going to lose a deal or two in that situation that I probably couldn't have not lost because the manager would have came in, trumped over, and solved all life's things, right? Yes, that may happen. But you got to teach people to fish, right? Because eventually, that manager is not going to be able to join seven calls or seven reps or eight reps at a time. And if you don't teach the people to do it, and the only way they're going to learn to do it is by trudging through and messing it up. That is the only way humans create habit by messing it up repeatedly until you've reached the point where you can solve for it without messing it up. Well, and talk about the, uh, the mental health of a rep, like the anxiety of having a manager on a first call. It's like, let me just go out there and figure it out. Like, I, I love your thought there. It's pretty rare. I'm very different than that. I mean, almost every sales org I've been in has always had shadowing and all that. But again, the world we live in is a lot different, right? I, I mean, I, I grew up in a sales world with no gong like training and mentoring had like, I mean, Ryan, you probably had this, but I don't think so. Like, remember the headsets that had the little wire that came out? And so you like could sit, ne sit next to the person. Yeah, there's another wire. There's another wire. This one had, a, had another wire that connected to another human. And the manager's and sitting there, the manager's sitting there like, like this, leaning in right and listening like, with the right chair. Right above your shoulder. And then they're the whispering chair. like, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, again, right like, back here. I think I'm going to do like my next LinkedIn session is like ridiculous shit that I grew up in sales sales with that yeah. people just don't understand now. And that's one of them, yeah. right? Like, so like, that's why it's just let people fail, give yeah. them the freedom to fail and tell them that it's okay. And the person's going to say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And you're going to do just like with your kids on the side of the pool. You're just going to push them in and then they're going to figure out how to swim. That's it. Right? And we don't, and we don't do that enough anymore. We don't give our sellers and our teams and our people like the opportunity to fail. There's too many helicopter leaders. There's too many trying to prevent those things. And that's just not us, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to throw you to the wolves. I'm going to watch you get bit and then you're going to lick your wounds. And then you're going to figure out how to not get bit the second time. But it might hurt for the first 30, 60, 90 days, but at 120 days, you're going to be bulletproof and generally more successful. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Cool. Awesome. Last, what, Darren, our, our typical final question there, I guess, Chris, ha, have you been asked this? And if you have not, would you be open to it? Uh, if a candidate said, would you, would you share your quote attainment dashboard 
uh, from your from your CRM system? I uh, have been asked and will. Yes, uh, it doesn't matter to me. I'll tell you, but it's irrelevant to me, right? I mean, I'll tell people on the call. I'll share my screen. You know, I'll tell. I'll let them know what my top earners make. I'll introduce them to my top earners. I'll have my top earners send them a W two if they want to. Most of my guys who are the top earners, I've been working with forever, and they they got my back. You know, so um, you know, like I <laughs> tricking someone into coming to work for you based on false, a false, some sort of false narrative is a waste of everyone's time. All the onboarding, all the training that I just talked about, all the leadership stuff, because eventually they're not going to be happy. And then happy people become cancerous people, cancerous people spread. And now you took one person who isn't happy and turned it into six other people who aren't happy and it goes from there, right? If I ever get in, I mentioned earlier that I don't interview a lot. Most of the time when I do, the role I play in the interview process is this is the reality of what you're stepping into. If you're okay with that, you're, you're good for our team. If you're not, there's a lot of sales organizations out there. It has to be a match. Like it has to be a match. Like, like I am, it is not my job to convince someone to come work for me. If I have to twist your arm that much to come work for me, then you're not my person, right? You shouldn't want to because it's fun and it's good and there's opportunity and you believe in it and all of that. If you don't, and I've got to sell you on it, you can go somewhere else. That's fine. That, and again, I might lose candidates sometimes with that, but what I don't lose is the time and resources of my people trying to spend the next six to eight months of their life convincing this person that they should still be working here. And then what happens? They get a 6K base salary increase offer from a series B funding startup that just got a bajillion dollars of whatever that's burning cash at $11 million a month. And they peace out and go talk about how the grass is greener. And they post on LinkedIn with their pretty little swag pack and you know all the Apple Mac, Lack, Macintosh, backpack with the stickers and all the other shit. Chris, you're literally describing why I joined Repview. You're literally describing it. Like I'm triggered, totally triggered, been there. Yeah, yeah it's just like a, a generalization, an accurate generalization of the entire tech landscape right now. <laughs> you go to market tech landscape right now. It's in a, in a, well, it's, and it's slowly moving out of tech too. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because everybody, because the world around you emulates tech, right? So everybody, everybody wants to be the cool kid, right? Like, I mean, I, I, shit, I've seen tech companies drive float inflatable unicorns across across the lake and like it's just baffling to me like, <laughs> but i'm not gonna we're not gonna that's a different podcast for a different day it's pre-tech yeah. though there's like the law firms have done this stuff forever like you yeah. know there's other industries yeah yeah i'll join you on that podcast someday <laughs> cool. well thanks guys thanks chris cool. appreciate yeah. you coming Great. on Refuge podcast this will be a good one Great awesome. job. Thank you. you so much.